Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Deserts of Plenty podcast, a podcast about making our way in this crazy, mixed-up world, and uh, also how to optimize our mental, physical, and spiritual health. We cover topics, everything from fasting to anti-fragility to uh, changing your mindset and your defaults and understanding empathy and narcissism and a whole range of things. And uh, as always, I'm really keen to hear from you. So by all means, if you want to send me a note, you can make leave your comments here. You can send me an email at ralph at socap.ca. That's S-O-C-A-P as in Peter dot C-A. Uh, and I'd love to hear from you and, and get your feedback about what you're doing to help your mental health, your spiritual health, and your physical health. Um, so today I... Uh, I want to talk about a very interesting thing that at first glance will probably, you won't believe it. You know, like uh, it seems really counterintuitive, which, um, you know, the more I learn about myself and humans and human interaction and transaction, the more that becomes more of the rule, the things that are you know, anti-intuitive actually are the things that are, oh, that's the thing that makes sense, you know, or that's the thing that works. You know, uh, for example, um, you know, we think we want to do things that in the short term are pleasurable, but things that in the short term are pleasurable in the long term will come to harm us, which we all know, you know, if you have that extra piece of cake or stay up till 4 a.m. and watch Netflix and do that too much or one extra drink. That's good in the short term or feels good in the short term, but in the long term, it uh, it will damage you. And then vice versa, things that are tougher in the short term, then the long term will benefit you. Like going to the gym, you know, uh, exposing yourself to cold temperatures, not having that extra drink, going to bed early, which oh, oh, nobody wants to do those things, of course, in the short term. But in the long term, oh, that's going to be of, of enormous benefit to me and make me feel a lot better. And one thing I do is, uh, you know, I ask myself uh, after something is done, if I wish I hadn't done that, you know, like I wake up in the morning after a night where I've been up late, I've had too many drinks. Boy, I wish I hadn't done that. You know, I never walked out of the gym and went, boy, I never, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't gone to the gym. You know, I've never gone 36 hours of fasting and afterwards went, boy, I wish I hadn't done that. Nope. I feel pretty good. And uh, the results as they say, speak for themselves. So today I want to talk about uh, a very interesting phenomenon, I guess, and how maybe when you first hear it, you'll be like, that doesn't sound right. But uh, when you really think about it, you go, well, of course, of course that sounds right. Uh, so there was a, an article came out, I think it was in 2017, and I believe it was the New York Daily News, but I could be wrong about that. But where it came out, it doesn't really specifically matter because it is a phenomenon. Uh, what they did in this um, in this paper, this article, is uh, they looked at people who had won uh, life-altering amounts of money in the lottery. You know, I think in, in excess of $1 million for sure, but probably I think even more than that. And they followed up and see what their life was like a few years down the road. And what they found is between five and seven years later, 70% of the people that won in the lottery were broke. Not only were they broke, but they were miserable and often in debt. Uh, and like, oh my gosh, like what happened? Well, 
they want a lot of money. They, you know, were not prepared or equipped to handle an influx of that much cash. And so two things happened. One, they started spending like drunken sailors. The second thing that happened is that a lot of their friends and relatives came and asked for money. And either they gave them money or they didn't. Um, and then uh, a little bit later, the money ran out. But now they were used to spending so much money, so they overspent and they wound up in debt. Meanwhile, the friends and family that asked for money, if they didn't give them the money, those people left and turned them out. Or if they did give them money and now they're asking for it back, well, that created ripples and problems and conflicts. And so basically, a few years after winning the lottery, these people, by and large, and 70%, were broke and miserable and friendless. <laughs> You're like, wow. They had so much good fortune, we would think. And then that wound up being... In hindsight, one of the worst things that ever happened to them, winning the lottery. Conversely, uh, if you look at individuals who have received a cancer diagnosis, a positive cancer diagnosis, so they, they, they had cancer, they beat their cancer, and then five years out after beating cancer, uh, cancer-free, and that's generally considered cured, their cancer is gone and not coming back, those people by and large, were much happier than the general population. Now, this is to be, just to be clear again, these are people who who had cancer, were treated, defeated it, and then five years after being cleared. So they are, again, uh, classified as having beaten their cancer. Those people were much happier than the general population. In hindsight, not that I want to say getting cancer it was the best thing that happened to them, but what it did is it altered their lives to the point that after they had defeated that terrible condition, they became much happier. So what's going on here between these two groups of people? Or what's the same and what's different? To me, both groups had events happen to them that changed their life. On the, on the lottery winners, what they got was a boon. They got like a... Uh, a huge influx of cash, which relieved from them responsibility, right? They didn't. They could quit their job if they wanted. They uh, could buy a bigger house, get a car, or a boat, whatever they wanted. But there's no real responsibility that they had. They, they were responsibility was taken from them. They could hire nannies for their children. They could do whatever they wanted. Whereas the individuals who received the diagnosis of a disease had responsibility heaped upon them. They had to go through a very difficult process, you know, looking at their lives, probably looking at the things that were truly important to them. And afterwards, once they came out the other side, they were much happier. So to me, there, it's this thing about responsibilities or constraints you know, I think about like the the Christian view of heaven is that it's this garden with fluffy clouds and all you do is you play the harp at the feet of God. And to me, that is a is hell, right? That's hell. When there's you, you get up and that's that's your job. That's what you've got to do. There's there's no there's no nuance. There's no obstacles. There's nothing to overcome. There's not there's no growth. It's just that it's stagnation. 
That to me is hell. There's no responsibilities. You have complete freedom. And we all love freedom. But when you have too much freedom, the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, uh, that can become quite problematic as we see from individuals who win the lottery. They, it's hard for them to deal with that level of non-responsibility, no constraints, right? Whereas the second group, having responsibilities, having constraints, leads to like an overcoming of that, dealing with it. Uh, you know, there's a reason to get up every morning, right? Um, it, it, yeah, it's just like that. It's that idea of what what makes people happy, right? That's what it comes down to. What makes people happy? And you know, if for those of us who don't have a lot of money or don't have, you know, the the right partner, or we don't have, you know, we think happiness lies in things or stuff or other people. Uh, but really what makes people happy, and it seems to be that solving problems is what makes us happy. Having a problem and overcoming it. Or having constraints or responsibilities or belonging to something that is bigger than myself. Why do so many people, I mean not now in, in the Western world, uh, but for my father's generation and my grandfather's generation, why were so many of them ready to run and join up and fight in a war? Because there is something about being part of something that's bigger than myself. Not absolute freedom. Not not having all my responsibilities suddenly taken from me and having ultimate freedom. That does not seem to bring people happiness. I mean, look at the children of billionaires. They're monsters. You know, and to me it's just like, well, they, of course, they've, they've, they've faced no obstacles. There's nothing to overcome. Every wish they want is granted. How could you not become like just a miserable person? It seems like so hard to find meaning in a life of absolute luxury, right? Like the story of the Buddha is really interesting. You know, he was his father when the Buddha was born. His father wanted to shield his son. He was a prince, and he wanted to shield him from any kind of strife problem he wanted his son to have this idyllic life basically a christian view of heaven every whim would be answered there'd be no conflict he wouldn't see suffering he wouldn't see pain he wouldn't see any of this stuff that goes on in our lives and as a result you know when the buddha snuck out of the palace when he was older and he got a taste of what that was like he's like well that's where life is and he went out and lived a very miserable existence which i'm not recommending but I don't recommend the former either. And uh, for me, when it comes to raising my daughter, I feel like I'm giving her the gift of letting her solve her own problems. You know, I I think certainly my first children, my, my older children, because uh, I have three now, I have a younger one. Uh, I was like many parents of my generation. We wanted to, we were the helicopter parents and became... You know, we wanted to intervene on our children's behalf because we know how difficult it was. You know, like when I went to school, there was corporal punishment. You know, I got beat in school, like, you know, beat. I got paddled, right? Humiliating. I'm not advocating a return for that. I think it's barbaric and I'm glad it's gone. So, but I'm saying like when my, when my children were going through school, 
I knew how tough school was and how I was often not believed because my parents believed that, well, if the teacher says I did something wrong, I did something wrong. Um, so I helped remove obstacles and fight my children's battles for them. And I think that I did them a disservice in doing that. I'm not saying like let them keep them adrift and let them solve everything. My daughter knows if it's a real problem, I'm there and I got her back. But I let her attempt to solve her problems. And she does very readily. And she's quite resilient. And uh, I think that's an important thing to allow our children to make mistakes, get messy. I mean, of course we don't want our children to get hurt. And of course we're not going to let them get pushed around or feel like it's all up to them. But, you know, we... uh, but, but letting them fail, letting them get messy and and show that the world is a, can be tough and, you know, a little bit at a time, you know, so they have an appropriate amount of responsibility and, and, and conflict and, and strife and issues so that as they grow older, they will be more capable and able to handle nuance, stressors, disappointments, failures. Because at what point are we expecting our kids to just know this stuff? Like, are they just going to grow up and like, but you know, they magically turn twenty-one or eighteen, and they're like, oh, they can handle it? No. And I, and I and I do find it very interesting that it's the same that a lot of people who are helicoptering or bulldozing parents or the lawnmower parents, you know, which is the one that blazes the trail and then the children just follow behind, are also the same people that you know will isolate their children as young infants in their own room saying, well, let them cry it out. They got to figure it out. Well, where does that, what what happened to that notion when they become, you know, they enter kindergarten? It just seems to go out the window. Anyway, I think it's important that we let our children fail and learn disappointment. And um, I tell you what, I despise loot bags. (laughs) I hate them. And, uh, you know, I get in trouble because my daughter has a birthday party. Where's the loot bags? There isn't one. I'm sorry. You know, I come up, try to come up with other creative ways. I mean, that's how we've, you know, our children, like, they're so fragile. We can't, they can't come and celebrate the birthday of their friend without also getting a present. What? That's crazy. I think that's crazy. I think we're doing our children a big disservice by, by, you know, telling each and every one of them that you are more special than everybody else in a world where everybody's special no one is uh so strife responsibility hardship these things are inevitable in life as dostoevsky said life is suffering and it's true life is going to throw us curveballs and crap and you know that's that's just the way it is and uh we've got to learn how to be to deal with that anyway that's me for today I hope you're having a splendiferous uh, week, and uh, we'll see you here again next time. Take care. Bye.